0: I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate.
1: The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand
0: before you today
1: to announce my
0: candidacy for president.
1: Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Robbie Gupta, co-founder and managing partner of Arena, and today we talk to my friend Majara Carter, who's an American urban revitalization strategist and broadcast producer from the South Bronx. Carter's career has spanned the environment, economy, social mobility, and real estate development, and her work has won major awards in each sector, including a MacArthur Genius Grant and a Peabody Award. Her TED Talk, titled Green in the Ghetto, has garnered over 2.6 million views. And with her inspired ideas and fierce persistence, Carter managed to bring the South Bronx its first open waterfront park in 60 years, the Hunts Point Riverside Park. And then she scored $1.25 million in additional federal funds for a greenway along the South Bronx Waterfront. We talk in this episode about how we can empower local communities to thrive through self-sufficiency and how the government and nonprofits often get economic development wrong. Let's jump right in. Majora Carter, welcome to the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: So, Majora, you have a really amazing story, and let's start from the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in the South Bronx in New York City, a little neighborhood called Hunts Point.
1: And you had a few siblings, from what I understand.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, I'm actually the youngest of 10, and I, I call us the uh, very affectionately the, the Ghetto Brady Bunch because my mom had three little kids when she married my dad, who was 21 years older, and he had three children her age, and then they got married and they had four additional children, and I was the last one.
1: And so what does it mean? You know, I'm a middle child, so that just means I have a strong sense of justice, I think. <laughs> That's the my positive spin on it. But what is it what does it do to somebody to be the youngest of ten or
0: of ten total, yeah. And I grew up with with seven. It was seven of us in the house. And um, I got to see everything. So I got to see what totally pissed my parents off. And so I knew not to do that. Mom, all my sibling thinks that I got special treatment, but it's just like, now I just watched the do, watched you do what you did that bothered them. And then I didn't do it. And then I did things that they liked. And basically that's how I got over. It was good. But it was, it was amazing because I was, you know, it was, it was a poor, we were definitely a poor family. Um, so it was a lot of hand-me-downs, you know, but a lot of, a lot of love, you know, in our, in our home, because, you know, we really, in many cases, because of the way the neighborhood had developed around us, we really only had, we had to really depend on each other. So it was really an amazing place to grow up, actually.
1: And so for folks who don't know the Hunts Point uh, neighborhood of Bronx, what, where is it within the Bronx, and uh, what was it like when you were growing up there?
0: So we are the southeasternmost section of the of the Bronx, literally, with this little peninsula that juts out into the Long Island Sound. And uh, when I was growing up, I mean, we were, this part of, the, of New York City was considered sort of like the national poster child for urban blight. There were years of financial disinvestment, you know, by the banking industry, redlining that literally made it so that the the, the homes, in particular, the ones that my father bought back in the nineteen forties, wasn't worth anything by the time I was born. Um, and uh, and uh, um, landlords were often sometimes giving their buildings away just because they didn't want to absolve them of any responsibility would happen. But other times they were actually paying to have them torched. You know, they were committing arson to collect insurance money because that was the only kind of of funds that were coming into or financing that was coming into places like the South Bronx during that time. And so we, the the Bronx itself, lost about 60% of its population around then. And it, it was a really difficult time but you know again it was still you know i remember like when i was the year i turned um eight the beginning of that summer with both buildings on opposite ends of my block burned down and at the and i watched it and at the end of it end of that summer my brother You, you
1: you watched it as they were burning down. oh yeah
0: i mean it was just broad daylight and and it would just be like oh it's, it's happening again. And it was just horrifying because, you know, that morning, though, you know, like I knew the, the building on the, the far side of the block, you know, the woman who used to sit in the in her front window every day, kind of like watching, you know, all the neighborhood kids was there the day before, you know, and she like, you know, if you did something wrong. She would tell your mother before, and I don't know how she knew before you even got home, but that she was then suddenly she was gone. I know she didn't die, but she was saved before she got out, you know, before the fire consumed the building. But suddenly, like someone who I knew literally every day of my, you know, seven-year-old life was displaced. And that was a really, that was those, those, those kind of experiences happened every day and you never got used to them. You just didn't, you expected them, but you never got used to them.
1: And so you eventually went off, went to college and But you decided not to stay away. I mean, this has been a life's uh, passion of yours is trying to get more and more people to come back to communities like yours. Uh, what made you decide to come back, and what did you do when you first came back? Well, initially,
0: after I did, I'd used education to get out of the neighborhood, which is, you know, sort of like a, a normal narrative, you know, in a in a, nor- a low-status community, um, you know, you grow up and you get out of a place like this, and I was no exception. And so I went away to college, um, and then I got into graduate school, and I at NYU and I needed a cheap place to stay. So that's literally why I came back home. I was not trying to, you know, save my community, save the world or anything like that. It was just there was a there was a spare bedroom at my in my parents' house, period. But it was my education and having some distance that led me to see that by the time when I got back to the neighborhood and realized that there was the city in our state Had been planning to build a huge waste facility on our waterfront, even though we handled an enormous amount of the city's waste infrastructure here already. It became clear that wait, this is doesn't that our neighborhood isn't bad just because there are policies that were put in place to ensure that it stays like this. It's like you can't build another waste facility that's going to add another five thousand tons a day into a community and then go, oh, no one's going to notice it. Of course we did. And that's when I realized that that education that I had and the distance that I would had for, for so many years made me realize like, oh, we, there's, we can change the, 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 the trajectory of these communities if we really looked at how that happened and what we can do to change it. So I worked on as part of like a citywide campaign to support a much more sustainable solid waste management plan. But at the same time, I've also worked on what were some project-based interventions that we could do to actually just make our community, and whether you're inside or outside the neighborhood looking into it, see it as a, as a real place that was worth being in and living and working in and, and supporting in some way, shape, or form. And that's when I started working on things like park infrastructure. So I transformed a dump into a park.
1: Yeah, let's pause there because that's like such an amazing story. So uh, as I understand it, you kind of stumbled upon this place. And so maybe we start from there. Like you stumbled upon a a section of your neighborhood. uh, And so walk us through that experience, like how you discovered the park and then how you galvanized support to build it.
0: Actually, right when we were in the middle of the, you know, the solid waste management plan planning. I kept getting these notices and, and phone calls from this woman who was working with uh, the New York City Parks Department through this U.S. Forest Service grant. In And they were just really trying to get folks that were working in areas around threatened urban waterways to help restore them. And, and so she kept calling and I didn't understand, like, why is this woman calling me? And then, you know, then I discovered that the, there's the Bronx River, which is only six blocks from my house is actually New York City's only true river. The, we, that's the only one we have. And um, yeah, six blocks from my house, definitely threatened in, in a bunch of different ways. And so they were offering these little seed grants to um, to restore these rivers or to do some kind of activism supportive. And I was like, okay, fine. But I, you can't get to the river because you really couldn't. Like I knew that there was a Bronx River. I saw it on a subway map, but that's about all I knew. But then I I was literally pulled into the into what was I thought was this dump that I'd seen a lot, like from the street, but it turns out that the dump dead ended at the river and I would not have seen it unless I had, had adopted this very crazy dog at the time that literally pulled me into it. And I literally had to like go over weeds and piles of garbage over my head. And again, I would not have gone in unless I had an eighty pound crazy dog that was fiercely loyal to me go with go ahead of me but it was amazing to, to actually see the river up close which I had never seen it like that and it was like oh my gosh and that's when I did I wrote this little seed grant uh, proposal got ten thousand dollars we were able over a few years to literally leverage that hundreds of times over and um, in 2006 it was transformed into this absolutely beautiful three million dollar park I got married in it one of the first days it was open, which was kind of cool. And it was amazing. It's just truly, truly an amazing piece. It's won national awards. It gets visited all the time. I mean, I'm just really excited that it's there.
1: Yeah. And we had an opportunity before this virus craziness. Uh, we had an opportunity to tour it together. Yeah. Uh, just a few months ago, I guess. It wasn't that long ago. And so for folks who are stuck inside in New York City and starting to explore the city now that the weather's warmer, what's the name of the park and how how can folks get there from various parts of the city?
0: It's called the Hunts Point Riverside Park. And I've I believe that they're still keeping it open. They have been a lot of park closures lately, anything with anything that looked like playground equipment. So I'm hoping that it stays open a little bit longer, but it might not.
1: And so you not only focus on parks, obviously you focus on uh, community-owned businesses and you've been really pushing for, I would say, a, a different uh, vision of development than a, a, you know what's commonly accepted within certain progressive circles. And you know one term that you use that I think is provocative in and in a good in a good way for us to start this conversation is self gentrification and so you mind explain what the term is and and why you think it might be a good thing
0: It's a provocative thing that's and that is literally the reason why we even bothered mentioning it just to provoke a conversation, which I think went over a lot of people's heads unfortunately but um the, I learned the term actually from a, a gentleman named Dr. Carter, who is the president of Johnson C. Smith University down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it is a, um, and that's a historically uh, black college down there. But it was interesting because here was this college. It's actually a really good engineering school. And it is literally in a community that's one of the poorest parts of Charlotte and north carolina in general and then he was just like this is crazy so there were some you know community development organizations in in the area and the and the university and then they got together and actually encouraged some financial institutions to invest in the community specifically so that the community itself could become developers on their own and, and but of course you know even though it was a much value big project lots of different projects were going on all done by local developers mind you there were still some who were just like, oh, my gosh, there's development happening. You're going to gentrify us out of our own community. And he was just like, this is not gentrification. If anything, it's self-gentrification because, yes, the community is getting better, but you're doing it yourselves. I mean, these are people from your own community creating development for your own community, building businesses and housing. And it, it's this is not gentrification. So, And I was like, oh, what an interesting term. And so occasionally I'd use it and and i thought and so to me all it really meant was development that was by us and for us which meant in terms of both the the, the housing and the business development there was an ownership stake that local communities had in it, which, if you look at the way low status communities just over the past 20, 30 years, you know, with all of the kind, whether it's philanthropic money going into it, whether it's affordable housing, you know, federal and city and state money going into it, those communities are, are remaining poor. They're not getting better economically, socially, health wise, or in any other way. And so, and I find that, and I always thought it was really curious that poverty in and of itself, was considered a cultural attribute. And I, I had a problem with it. I really did.
1: And do you mind saying more about, you know, this was like a huge uh, focus of our conversation when I saw you a few months ago. Do you mind explaining more about what you mean by poverty being a cultural attribute?
0: If you look at the way that dollars, philanthropic, government dollars circulated through American low status neighborhoods, what we often find is that they go to the kind of, you know, with health clinics, you know, affordable housing, educational, you know, resources, in many cases, that's expected so that if you if you spend money on education, like the ones that rise to the top, they're expected to leave their own communities, like they're not expected to stay and invest. And so it's almost as if to do anything like talk about money to expect to to make it, it's almost as if that's inauthentic. And we thought that was a really interesting thing when you looked at the way money was spent in our communities. Um, again, philanthropic and government money was spent. It went toward things like, you know, how do you support people with chronic health problems? You know, how do you, you know, house people that are, you know, chronically homeless or chronically poor? And there was no sense of aspiration, you know, applied to the way money was actually being funneled and lots of it funneled into, into our communities. And, and you were almost always, I think, if you, if you dared to sort of have aspirations, you were considered, oh, well, that's what you do when you get out of the neighborhood. And, and that struck me as really odd. And so what, and one of the things that we actually did was we actually asked people, you know, we did hundreds and hundreds of surveys, what do you want in the community that you desire? When you dream about a place where you are, what are you looking for? And you know, and the, the policy wonky question would have been, you know, is, is poverty a cultural attribute? Is is poverty something worth preserving? And all of it's it's a it's a is it something worth preserving? And so, interestingly enough, when they answered the questions, what they wanted were the same exact things that people would see in higher status communities. They wanted things like coffee shops and bookstores and, and restaurants and bars. And they wanted things like that. They didn't want any of the things that were currently readily available in spades in their own community. And, and I was just like, Oh, well, isn't that interesting? And, and I realized that part of the problems that we were experiencing in, in American low status communities is that we were creating the infrastructure for the talented ones that were born into our community to make them want to leave it's like we were taught to measure success by how far we got away from our community. And I was a perfect example of that. You know, I grew up I and mean, I was reading when I was three and there was also, sort of, I mean, literally, I don't remember a day when folks were just like, wow, you're going to grow up. And you're going to be somebody you're going to get when you grow up and get out of here. And it was like, and you know, and I ate it up. I mean, who, who doesn't, you know? And, and now that I work around the country in low status communities of all colors, when I share that part of my story, people, I mean, they're often tears because they realize like, yeah, I did that. I did I did that too. And nobody's proud of the fact that they left where they came from because again, like me too, there were wonderful things that they remember about it and wonder why. And then there's often sometimes guilt associated
1: with the leaving. It's like why me and not that person over there? You talked about the fact that Members of your community, when you po- when you pull them or- and interview them, want businesses that are not what they're getting from. I think you've called it before the nonprofit industrial complex or something like that. But you didn't just stop there with a survey. You started some of those businesses, right? And you want to talk about how you uh, the the boogie down grind came to be?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's sort of funny because again we have these like great ideas and we're just like we you know it be awesome. If people will do this. So what we did do was we actually acquired some pretty cheap leases. And and our plan was to sort of build the infrastructure for like a district, you know, whether, you know, arts and community building. So we, we preserve some spaces for things like coffee shops. And we tried for well over a year to find, you know, first of all, yes, we called Starbucks and they were so not interested. Um, and then we, you know, heard about, you know, various coffee, you know, people that were loved coffee and, you know, and they we're in the Bronx and, and we were just like, we've got a space for you and it's really cheap. Nobody would come. And it was in part because the, the neighborhood was considered an emerging market for something like specialty coffee. And so, you know, you can get plenty of Dunkin' Donuts, you can get bodega coffee, but, you know, real coffee heads are not going to do that. And so we realized that the only thing we could do was open this thing up ourselves. And thank God we actually got a partner to start, which is Birch Coffee. And they actually own about, I think now a dozen or so really amazing specialty coffee shops in downtown New York City. And they were our partner. For the first six months and you know but prior to that we had to go through like a very intense coffee training how to run a coffee shop because as a partner like we needed to know all that stuff but then within the next six months we realized that we needed to go out on our own and so we separated quite beautifully and amicably but then we rebranded ourselves as the boogie down grind cafe which was a way to sort of pay homage to our Birthplace, you know, which is the the South Bronx, was also the birthplace of hip hop, and so the space became, you know, the, even the decor really speaks to that the era that hip hop was born, you know, in the South Bronx and uh so we have covers of of some seminal hip hop albums um we we did we engaged in something we call urban archaeology which is we we took the signs that were up on various um you know uh, uh you know parts of the neighborhood from back in the day from other old liquor store signs um and things like that um and just really we had a blast and so when people come in they're just like you know, literally immersed in this environment of, of, of hip hop culture. And it's hilarious and, and a lot of fun. And we use a space for open mics and workshops and, and it's just the, one of the only third spaces, you know, a space that's neither work nor home um, within our community, that community can gather in a space like that. And, you know, unless you consider the, the waiting room of, of the several health clinics that we have around here or community centers, which, you know, basically seem to cater to little, little kids, but for adults to come and have a drink or, or, you know, really good, um, you know, little spot bite of
1: food, go on a date.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) And so you started a coffee shop, it was vibrant. The last time I was there, obviously, in this age of this virus, uh, you probably had to shut it down over the past few months. We did. Is it going to survive?
0: Yeah. Oh, it's definitely going to survive. Because we're a third space and we're not and it's sort of an immersive experiential place and and part of the experience is actually connecting with your with somebody who walks in with you or not with you and you hang out you know we didn't take we, we didn't do well when it was just takeout because like the fun of being there was actually being able to hang out so for us it was just it wasn't worth it but what we did do was we started, you know, thanks to the changes in, in um, a security exchange commission where non-accredited investors can invest in real estate deals and other kind of deals like this. So we're raising some money that's going to go sp- specifically to support the opening of our cafe because when it does open and think it'll open within the next few months, it's going to be hard because I do think it's going to take some time for people to get used to the idea of coming into a place and sticking around. I think that's just something Anybody who's in the food industry is going to have to, we're going to have to wrangle with that. And so we knew that we're going to take a loss, of course, the first few months. And so instead of going to a bank and trying to get some funds and paying them interest, we're like, we would much rather, you know, like set it up on this platform and we're paying some interest to our community who took the time to and and spent their money to invest in us. So we're excited about that.
1: You had another project that we walked through, which was I think it was a food hall. Right?
0: Yes, yeah. well, it's a old, well, it's going to be, but right now, <laughs> it's a old, it's a former rail station. You should see it now, um, because we actually did some more demolition, and so it's an old rail station um, that was designed by the same architect that did the Woolworth Building and the U.S. Supreme Court Building and George Washington Bridge. And his name is Cass Gilbert and he's just like an American architectural treasure. Same time he was doing some of the, that stuff, he was doing rail stations and they really are these beautiful little buildings, just architecturally amazing. And so, but it was turned into like a little mini strip mall in the 1940s and, and I acquired it several years ago. And, and so we're finally at a point where we're going to transform it into something else. And so we're going to start by opening it up as an event hall because there's not a whole lot of space like that. So anything from whether it's weddings or photo shoots and music venues, we're getting a lot of interest in seeing that happen right now. But so we'll be operating it that way for ourselves. But ideally, what we'd love, because we think that strategically, it's an amazing space. And it's right across the street from where Metro North, which is our regional rail service is going to be opening up a, a brand new station in the next couple of years. So where we think that that would be an amazing food hall, and so we're we're hoping at an operator because we really don't want to do that ourselves. We'll go, hey, that's the place for us. So that's what we're looking for. But in the meantime, it's going to make an awesome, awesome event space. I mean, we've already got you know people that are like scouting for for music venues popping up all over the place, and it's just like we can't even gather and congregate in any space right now. But it's they're looking at it like, oh, this could be it. I'm excited.
1: And so obviously this virus, you know, as we're talking, we're in May 2020. The virus is wreaking havoc across our country and uh, distressing all communities. And, you know, I was looking up some stats on this and it's about about 30 percent of residents of your district are below the poverty line, the New York City poverty measure. That was before all of this. What are you seeing in your community right now? how hard hit is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What are you hearing from folks?
0: I mean, what's interesting is if, the, if you look at the stats, definitely the Bronx in general, um, especially the South Bronx, has been very hard hit. You know, in terms of infection rates as well as deaths. I mean, one of the we're we're definitely a hot spot in the city. But from what I can tell you from just being around, you know, people are in really really good spirits and. Just being incredibly supportive of each other, you know, as much as we can be from from a from a social distance, and that's what I love about my community. It's I was literally just outside, you know, at a rail station because we're in the middle of doing some 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 demolition right now, and it's you know again from a social distance, you can just tell people first of all that we're working inside, and people are just like so excited that anything's happening. So people are already starting to look for the future, toward the future, but being mindful that, you know, stuff is going to be hard for everybody right now. And, um, but I really have been psyched about the way, um, you know, whether it's local groups, you know, have been pulling together to support people that really need it.
1: And what do you think? I forget who originally said this. Some people say it was Churchill and Rahm Emanuel or whatever, but that crisis brings opportunity. What do you think the opportunity is with, you know, and focusing on New York City in particular, a place that's been harder hit than probably anywhere else on the planet, a place that's going to probably lose population over the course of the next few years, that's going to lose a significant portion of its tax base. But, um, probably isn't going to lose population in your neighborhood uh it's you know the way i think about it is, and correct me if i'm wrong is it's probably going to be manhattan it's probably going to be parts of brooklyn where people have the means to leave but you know people in bronx people in staten island parts of queens you know and, and parts out of outer brooklyn are, are not leaving the city you know um and so what does this mean for the folks who stay
0: all sorts of things i mean because yes crisis does bring opportunity and, um and but the question is opportunity for whom? And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I heard a, a really funny stat about the rates of garbage that are happening in wealthier parts of New York City, that the garbage men there, there's there's nobody there. So they have nothing to even throw away. Whereas in our communities, it's like, yeah, it stayed exactly the same.
1: Yeah, or it went up, right? Like I was looking at, I think Bronx and Staten Island garbage collection went up because people are, you know, residential you know, these are people who generally travel into the city. Yeah, I travel into Manhattan because they have municipal jobs, or have to show up to an office, or have a service job. But they're staying in their communities. Whereas, like you know, where where I'm currently living in Olita, there's a lot of people like me who bounce at the first opportunity to to get out. And I think uh, that's that. I think that says something about who's going to be around, uh, you know, two years from now.
0: And, you know, and it's interesting because I see that, you know, the the real estate industry, especially the speculators market is doing just fine, you know, and I think they're probably going to take full advantage of the fact in, in neighborhoods like this, the South Bronx, especially if it was held on to the property was held on to by an older resident who's just probably fine. I have no idea what to do with this thing and they're, they're ripe for that. And so I do hope that there's going to be some interest, although I haven't seen it yet unfortunately with our city and state and federal government to, to protect people from that kind of of predatory speculation for their the properties that are happening right now. I think that's that's pretty real. And you know, is there a way also, and I do think there are opportunities, you know, to to keep make sure that people can stay in their homes, you know, especially the properties that they own. And is this going to be and if people are going to stay here are the folks that are here going to be the ones who have the opportunities, the capital, you know, in order to actually build our city back, you know, or, or are we still going to have the same kind of problems that we see in terms of getting access to capital, you know, in in poor communities for the businesses that need to be built to restore them and the rest of the city. And those are real questions that I don't see anybody really policy-wise, even trying to, to to broach, not to say that we don't have to be mindful about people that are truly struggling and the fact that people are still dying and need care. And and obviously we need all that too, but we are going to come out of this. And, you know, we I think what's been clear is that after every disaster, the communities that were messed up before, they stay messed up. They were messed up before they were messed up during probably more. So we, you know, that's why communities like the South Bronx see more illnesses and deaths during crises like this. And then after that, it's like, okay, did we learn anything from this? You know, how do we make sure that we're supporting people so that they can actually be a little more supportive of of their own selves, like the chronic health conditions that make that made coronavirus even more virulent where do you find them? Those kind of lifestyle-related illnesses that we tend to take this 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 um the the uh, um uh, this this mode of you know we just have to manage people throughout their health crises. We don't really have to get to the point where they don't get them in the first place, you know, which comes from better food, you know, better access to to jobs and you know better access to healthy living and um and living spaces, and you know how oh my goodness, poor communities are really hard hit by this. It's just like You're surprised. Why? Why is this a news story? It should be, you know, what are we going to do to make sure that the next time there's a crisis like this, that it's not the same people who are automatically destroyed from the get go, that they'll actually come out of it better than before.
1: Well, with that, Majora, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, you're You're a true hero.
0: Thanks for having me.